Ladies and gentlemen. Won't you be seated, please, ladies and gentlemen. The President of the United States. It is essential for the American people to be alerted to this danger. In 1971. To recognize that it is a danger that will not pass with the passing of the war in Vietnam. It was June 17, 1971, nearly four years before the end of the war in Vietnam, more than three years before President Richard Nixon resigned, and only a few months before Greenville, South Carolina's Table Rock Laboratories became one of the biggest targets in the South for organized crime. This statement, which I think needs to be made to the nation, America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. In order to fight and defeat this enemy, it is necessary to wage a new all-out offensive. Nixon's declaration was a declaration of war, the war on drugs. That day, he promised $350 million in new funding to fight drugs in America. Hey, kiddies, gather around. The man with the goodies is here. Four months later, in October of 1971, a man named Frank Luber quit his job as an investigator for a local defense attorney to become a cop. Luper went to work for Sheriff Bob Martin as a narc. He grew out his hair and his beard and became known as the Fuzzy Beast. That same month, a gang of burglars hit Table Rock Labs for the first time, stealing 65,000 amphetamine pills. Here's a little beauty for me to eat. Anti-drug commercials weren't new in the 1970s, but they became iconic. This one features a street magician trying to sell drugs to a bunch of street smart kids. Look here. Amphetamines, bennies, dexies, meth. They say amphetamines can cause something like schizophrenia. Schizophrenia. In most cases, it does not last. The message behind the 1970s PSA is like this one. It was the kind a true believer would appreciate. A vignette where the kids are smart and the drug dealers are stupid. Grass. Anything wrong with pot? They're not sure yet. They just started studying about it. If you listen to his friends, Frank Looper was that kind of cop a man who truly believed in getting drugs off the streets, which is why it might seem strange. Dig everybody, L-S-D. Bad trips and a chance of chromosome damage. Looper quit the sheriff's office less than a year later. Looper left his job as the fuzzy beast under Sheriff Bob Martin, a man who had employed a favorite lieutenant, Bub Skelton, for more than 15 years. For whatever reason, true believer or not, Looper turned on his heels and left. How do you know you got Everything you got there can hurt you, can't it? Sure, kid. Why do you think they call it dope? Nah. Hey, where's everybody going? Burglars hit Table Rock Labs twice while Looper was a cop the first time, and then again after he left. Those thieves took millions and millions of dollars in drugs. The type of crime a true believer in the drug war might not be able to tolerate. The legend of Frank Looper says he was a true believer in the new war on drugs. Wasn't he one of those detectives, narcs or something, that was killed with his daddy? So after Cash Williams won the 1972 election, Frank Looper went back to the sheriff's office. His daddy had a garage. Sheriff Williams hired Looper as his top drug lieutenant. Him and his daddy got killed in West Greenville. For the next two years, Looper faced Nixon's public enemy number one. He was in the papers. It was in on TV and everything like that. And became the number one enemy of anyone in Greenville County, South Carolina, who wanted to fight on the other side of the drug war. That's the only thing my husband had done was planted a couple of marijuana plants out in the yard because he just thought it was neat. That was back when, when he was young, <laughs> young and stupid. That is a woman named Joan Wynn. 
She's 83 years old and still sleeps in the same house she did in the summer of 1974 when Frank Looper and his narcotics team showed up. The narcs were only looking for a couple of marijuana plants that heard Wynn's husband Clifford had in the backyard. My husband had planted a couple of marijuana plants out in the back. Two of the people uh, he knew back then was people that was breaking in drugstores and all. If this were the kind of podcast that used sound effects, this is where you would hear that sound of a needle scratching on a record. Because when Frank Looper and his team showed up to grab a couple of pot plants, they found tens of thousands of amphetamines. Not quite seven months later, Looper was dead after someone shot him and his father in their Pendleton Street garage. And as for that bust, Looper's legacy lived on for at least a couple of years as Clifford Wynn sat in prison. He was sent to prison because of it. He was 27 months, I think it what it was, but he's a, a dedicated Christian now, and he's been a deacon and everything at the church. So, you know, the Lord has really been good to us. Joan Wynn waited for her husband while he was locked up. They've been together their entire lives. Yeah, I was 13, he was 16 when we met. I was 16, he was 19 when we got married. So we've had a wonderful life. She remembered Frank Looper's name, that he was a narc, and that somebody killed Looper and his father. In 2019, she sat on the phone with her 86-year-old love of her life right beside her. Happy, they came out on the good side of things. The Lord saved him, and that's 40-something years ago. So we've just been living for the Lord ever since then. The other thing Miss Wynn remembered? She remembered the murder case was closed. I thought they caught the black man that was supposed to have killed him. I'm Brad Willis. This is Murder, Etc. What do you see when you look in a mirror? Are you a mom, a dad? Are you a person of faith? Are you a patriot? Are you an accountant, a journalist, a cop? Everyone looks at their reflection, and if they don't know, they at least believe they know who they are and what they are. Danny Jones believes in every cell in his body, he is a cop. I drove a truck to California. I've built log homes on Glassy Mountain. I've done about everything there is. Nothing will ever be what it was when I was at the Sheriff's Department. Some kids will tell you they want to be a firefighter or a doctor or a lawyer. Most kids will change their minds a million times. Danny Jones never did. It's something that's always been in my blood since I was a little kid. Of all the things i ever done, that's the only thing I can ever say that I wanted to do. I mean, I've done everything. Jones is retired from law enforcement now, but if you ask him today, he might go back, even if you didn't offer him a paycheck. Since I was a little kid, and even today, I'm 67, and I miss it as bad as Pete Rose misses baseball. It's something I've never been able to get away from. In 1973, Jones was a young man living just across the county line, really close to what is now a huge BMW plant that changed South Carolina's economy and job market. But back then, the job market wasn't great, especially for a Spartanburg County guy who wanted to work the beat in Greenville County. I was actually born and raised right where BMW plants at now, and I was in Spartanburg County. Back then, you had to live in the county. 
So I was dating this girl at the time in 73. She lived in Greer in Greenville County. <laughs> so I used that address, her mom and dad's address, so I could put it down as I lived there. Joan's little ruse worked, and it changed his life. At home, he was the youngest of his siblings, youngest by a long way. They were 15 when I was born, so you can imagine when I got to be 10 or 12, they didn't want nothing to do with me. So when I got into law enforcement, it was like having all these brothers, you know, all my family. Jones was working the patrol beat for the city of Greenville, but he quickly ran across a county cop named Frank Looper. And Looper was a narc. To me, he was Clint Eastwood. I thought he was the coolest guy on the planet. By this time, Looper was working for Sheriff Cash Williams and tearing up the drug scene in Greenville. Looper had set aside his department-issued gun and bought a Smith & Wesson 357. Looper was everything Jones wanted to be. I went and bought me a pistol like Frank's. I bought a holster like Frank's. I got a badge like Frank's. He was a good guy. He's a good cop. Jones did his job in the city, writing tickets, keeping the peace. But what he really wanted to do was be out there on the streets, at night, working undercover. So, he started hanging around the county guys. He'd finish his shift as a city cop, then go looking to do some volunteer work with the county. Sometimes I'd change it to sheriff's office, sometimes I'd change it to Wade Hampton Fire Department, jump in the car with them and take off. And we'd stay out here at three or four o'clock in the morning, five o'clock in the morning. I'd run home, jump in the bed, sleep till about one, get up, get back, and get back on second shift till midnight, you know. I've done that over and over and over. Working doubles with two agencies wasn't enough for Jones. On his days off, he'd just show up around Looper's office, hoping for a chance to go out with Looper and his men again. On one of those days, Jones stood just outside, and he says two high-ranking county detectives walked up, asked him what he was doing, who he was waiting on, what they were going to do, who Looper was looking to bust. Jones was honest. He said he didn't know. He was just there to tag along. I mean, these guys were detectives, and uh, they, were, they were way above some knothead like me. Huh? And you've been there a year yet. Right then, Frank Looper appeared. The door opened, he came out, and he didn't speak to him. Well, they walked off, and he said, uh, what are you talking to him about? Jones says the normally genial Looper turned immediately serious and demanded to know what his fellow deputies had asked the young city cop. They just asked me what we were doing. He was almost mad at me, you know. I mean, you could see it in his face. He was real concerned about that. And he goes, look, let me tell you something. If they ever ask you anything about what we're doing or what I'm doing or anything about me, you call me, you get in touch with me right then. You understand what I'm saying? Danny Jones and other people who knew Looper say, this is the very reason it's very hard to tell Frank Looper's story. The evidence Looper might have left behind that could have proven why he was killed is the very evidence he hid from everyone because he didn't know who he could trust. I don't think he really trusted anybody outside the guys he worked with. And the guys he worked with, outside of Danny Jones, have remained nearly silent for four decades. There's a photo from the Greenville News from February 4th, 1975. 
Ten men are carrying a flag-draped casket toward a near-frozen hole in Graceland Cemetery. Frank Looper is dead inside that casket. Some of the pallbearers are people you've heard of. Al Ashmore and Furman Paris, Calvin Ross, Harold Kelly. The men who first braced Beverly Ann Johnson, the woman who first implicated a man named Larry Poole in the Looper's murders, and then later recanted. Ashmore, Ross, Paris, they're all dead today, and I've not yet been able to speak to Calvin Kelly. There are two other men carrying that casket. Ken Pettis, a local 1970s football hero turned narc, who is now the assistant athletic director at Furman University. After many emails, Pettis finally wrote me a one-line note that read, quote, I have no interest in this project. And then there's a man who considered Frank Looper not only a partner, but one of his closest friends. Dear sirs, my name is Miles Cheatham. That is not Miles Cheatham's voice, but they are his words. And when compared to the rest of Frank Looper's old narcotics team, Miles Cheatham is a much longer story. Cheatham joined Looper when they raided Clifford Wynn's house. And the name Miles Cheatham is a name that rings a bell with the current sitting sheriff, Johnny Mac Brown. I remember Miles Cheatham, and I remember firing Miles Cheatham. Cheatham's time at the sheriff's office ended not long after voters elected Sheriff Johnny Mac Brown in 1976. Today, Sheriff Brown says he fired Miles Cheatham because Cheatham had some things to say that the sheriff didn't like. He had some comment about me. I can't remember exactly what it was. You know, Bub Skelton back then, and something about Bub Skelton. And of all the battles Sheriff Brown encountered in nearly three decades as the county's top lawman, his one-time association with Bub Skelton haunted him more than most. I didn't condone what Bub Skelton did. You know, I worked with him when I was at Slutter's office and at probation. I remember going out and serving warrants with him. Uh, he and Ken Evett and I. I had no idea Bub was involved in anything. Uh, there was always talk that Bub was dirty. Never had any evidence that he was dirty. By the time Johnny Mac Brown made it to the sheriff's office, Bub Skelton was on his way to federal prison for the legendary Dawson gang bank robberies. I certainly didn't prove what Bub Skelton did, but Bub Skelton and my and his dad and my dad used to rabbit hunt together. You know, really? So yeah, John, John Skelton and my dad rabbit hunt together. I knew both a year. Brown knew Skelton well after the 1970s, even after Skelton got out of prison for those robberies. And in the 1980s, the ghost of the still living Bub Skelton haunted Sheriff Brown again. For more than two decades, the FBI had been chasing a gambling kingpin named Tommy Lynn Porter. When federal agents finally moved in on Porter, they ended up also snagging Bub Skelton, Porter's bagman and bouncer. Skelton, being back in the news, was bad news for Sheriff Brown, due in part to what Brown describes as a thank you gift from Bub Skelton. His way to thank me for hiring his son, Dale, uh, was to to, to give me some golf clubs. And so I went over to his house. Now, you know, my dad always said, not only must it be right, it must look right. Well, it didn't look right. And I didn't, you know, I didn't accept the fact that it didn't look right. There was nothing wrong. He asked for nothing. 
I gave him money for them, and it ended up that, that he gave them to me. I didn't give them to me. I paid him for them. Newspaper reporters pounced on the story. The Greenville News ran an editorial cartoon featuring a skeleton dressed like he was ready to play 18 holes at Augusta National. Alongside the cartoon were these words, the skeleton in Johnny Mac's closet. Greenville News reporter Bill Fox wouldn't let the story go, and Sheriff Brown has not forgotten about that. I went through that with Bill Fox. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I mean, and I was about ready to choke Bill Fox. <laughs> I told him, yes, he came and brought me up, but I paid him for him. Today, though, Sheriff Brown concedes it was not his finest moment. It was a dumb move on my part, but, you know, hindsight's 2020. Voters, however, didn't turn their back on Brown, and he remained sheriff until he retired in the year 2000. No matter what, voters believed in Brown. They believed he was doing the best job for the county. And while Brown was ready to choke a 1980s reporter, he handled Cheatham simply by canning him. Exactly what Cheatham said about Sheriff Johnny Mac Brown and Bub Skelton is not in any document I can find. Cheatham will not talk about it. And Sheriff Brown says he can't recall exactly. But it was enough to banish Cheatham from the sheriff's office and ultimately law enforcement altogether. And he made some statement about me and Bud Skelton, and I called him in here. And I don't need you. I think I fired him then. Sheriff Brown ended up cleaning house in the narcotics department. I didn't recommission Outlash more because they had a bad, they had a bad name. Not the two, but the, the vice narcotic or street crimes unit, whatever they called it then, had a bad name. I didn't want those kind of people working in the sheriff's office. This part of Greenville's history is murky. Understanding it is part research and part reading between the lines. Even then, it's sometimes impossible to know what's right, wrong, or in between. Retired narc Danny Jones said Looper only trusted his own men. But even those men have barely said a word publicly since Looper died. In fact, the closest thing you'll find on the record is a letter Miles Cheatham wrote to the South Carolina Parole Board in support of Charles Wakefield Jr.'s release from prison. Cheatham wouldn't appear at the parole hearing in person, but he sent a letter with another former deputy. I have a letter from his former partner, and in law enforcement, your partner is like a brother, and I want to read his letter. Dear sirs, my name is Miles Cheatham. I'm a former deputy with the Greenville County Sheriff's Office. Frank Looper was my partner and my closest friend. He was murdered in 1975. I write in support of Frank's family and their request that you grant parole to the man convicted of murdering Frank and his dad. I loved Frank like a brother. He was a good man and the finest law enforcement officer I ever served with. And he came from a good family, the family that stands before you today. I want you to grant parole today. I, be I believe Frank, if he had lived, would want you to grant parole today as well. Something good must come after all this tragedy. On behalf of all those who knew and loved Frank, I respectfully ask that you honor both Frank and Frank's family by granting their request for parole today. Sincerely, Miles Cheatham.
That is the closest thing we have on the record to knowing what was in the hearts of the men who worked for Frank Looper. That Miles Cheatham, whose career in law enforcement ended abruptly, supported Charles Wakefield Jr. going free for the Looper murders. And Cheatham believed Looper would have wanted the same thing. Cheatham still lives in upstate South Carolina, but told me he couldn't let me interview him for murder, etc. And so we're left with only his letter. But now, after years of investigating, being told countless times to let the story go and turned away again and again when I asked people to speak to me, we now have some greater insight into just what was happening with Frank Looper as he fought in the last months of his life for a cause he believed in. He said, if this thing goes, there's gonna be people take a fall you would not believe. You would not believe it. That is coming up right after this break. Not too long ago, I had an important meeting related to murder, etc. Not one I could have in a restaurant or under a park pavilion. It needed to be private, but I only needed the space for a day and I had no budget to start renting offices. I ended up at a place called Endeavor. It's a co-working and office space in downtown Greenville. Endeavor has 20,000 square feet of professional yet comfortable space for just about any kind of freelancer, entrepreneur, or anyone that needs some space to do their business. You can rent space on a long-term basis for a big event at night or just a spot for the day. And the people at Endeavor couldn't be nicer. They also happen to be friends. This is not actually a paid ad. In fact, they didn't ask me to say anything about them. But I didn't sell an advertisement for this episode, so I thought I'd be sure everyone knew. If you're traveling to Greenville for business or live in town and need just about any kind of space, Endeavor has you covered. You can check them out at EndeavorGreenville.com. In 1974, Danny Jones was a rookie cop who had just found the man he still considers a hero today. Jones says he spent night after night on the road with Frank Looper. And today, Jones remembers, finally, not just discovering, but understanding his purpose in life. A purpose he found when he found Frank Looper. Lieutenant, I'm gonna work for you one day, like that. And he, he was driving. And I actually think Miles was sitting in the back seat. I said, that's what I wanna do, man. I wanna get out of this uniform. I wanna work narcotics. I wanna be a narcotics agent. There it was, in the dead of night, in Looper's car. Jones had just announced to his hero that he wanted to be just like him. Jones says Looper was kind. And he said, that's good. Just stay with what you're doing. Try to do a good job. One day, you know, you'll get that opportunity. It was the winter of 1974, not too long before Looper's last Christmas, his last New Year's, and his last month on the job. Jones says, right there in the car, Looper suddenly and unexpectedly trusted him enough to hint at what he was planning. He just came out and told me, he said, look, he said, there's going to be some stuff happening real soon that's going to turn this county upside down. If this thing goes, there's going to be people take a fall you would not believe. You would not believe it. Looper had Jones' attention 100%. The lieutenant had told the eager rookie to pay his dues and be ready for the next steps. But Jones wanted in 
right then. I want to help. I want to go. I want to be involved in it. And they said, well, don't worry, because you'll get to go, and we're going to need the help. That was as much as Looper would say, as much as he said to his family or any other confidants. Jones says whatever Looper was planning seemed imminent. But just days later, something happened. That night on Pendleton Street, when somebody used the Looper home place for target practice. Now part of Looper's inside circle, Jones remembers the days afterward. When his house got shot up, all right, I talked to Frank. Jones says he heard the story a lot of different ways, but he never forgot what Looper and his men suspected. Somebody saw a town car leave there real close at a high rate of speed, went into West Greenville right after the, when his house got shot up the first time. There was a town car left there, and, and there was a guy that was part of that Dawson gang had a town car. We knew then things were going to get bad. Things were going to get bad. They just didn't know how bad it would be. On January 31st, 1975, they found out. Jones heard about it from one of Looper's most dedicated deputies. He said, man, Frank's been shot. He's in the hospital. And I said, you got to be kidding. He said, but his daddy's already dead. The next day, Jones' hero, Lieutenant Frank Looper, was dead too. To this day, people disagree about why someone shot Frank Looper. Jones himself isn't sure. But as for why someone started shooting at the Looper house in the first place, that mystery has a lot more clarity now that Fast Eddie Williamson is talking to murder, etc. Had something to do with Table Rock Laboratories. In episode 11, Love and Hate, I introduced you to Eddie Williamson, a man serving life in federal prison, who might be the only person alive who can speak with absolute authority about the South's criminal underworld in the 1970s. Fast Eddie is notoriously guarded and private. He doesn't talk to reporters. But after nearly a year of getting to know each other, Fast Eddie agreed to tell me what he knew, thought, and believed about Frank Looper. Frank lived straight in front of the Tasty Trees. It was just a few houses up from Roy Stansel's old shell station right there on the corner. Eddie Williamson is now in his 70s. And his recall for detail is remarkable. He remembers with exceptional clarity the very layout of the neighborhood where Frank Looper grew up, in part because Fast Eddie grew up not far away. Both of us were raised in West Greenville. I, was, I went to Parker District School. He went to the Greenville District School. We would meet sometime at the community center. From their young years at the community center to their lives as adults, Looper and Williamson took decidedly different paths. But Williamson says that didn't affect their relationship. We got along good. I mean, we had respect for each other. Respect is a word Williamson doesn't use lightly. To him, it's as important as loyalty. And though the cop and the criminal had different and competing goals in life, Williamson says he and Looper worked around each other. He never bothered me, and I never bothered him. Anytime I seen him, I gave him total respect. I never told him nothing in my life. He never told me nothing in my life. You know what I'm saying? What Eddie's saying, he was a criminal. Looper was a cop. But the respect for each other allowed them to coexist. 
I thought he was a decent young man when we were growing up before he went in the Navy. But, uh, you know, we just went separate ways. I run with a rough crowd. He didn't run with that same rough crowd. In the early 1970s, Fast Eddie ran with people who would be called everything from the Dixie Mafia to the Dawson Gang. The way Eddie tells it today, part of his 1970s crowd didn't share the respect he says he had for Frank Looper. And so, in the last months of Looper's life, and they stood over in the Tasty Freeze parking lot. Fast Eddie Williamson says part of that crowd wanted to scare Lieutenant Frank Looper. Bob Skelton and Luke Cannon hired Jerry Huffman and Kip Gibson to do that, to scare Frank off from doing something to him. According to Williamson, on orders from Bob Skelton and Luke Cannon, two gang members, Jerry Hufflin and Tip Gibson, took their positions at the Tasty Freeze, right across the street from the Looper home, and started shooting. Had something to do with Table Rock Laboratories because Bub and Luke and Hoyt Powell and them were getting all the money, uh, their ends out of it. See, Bub and Luke uh, got an uh, end out of it, and uh, Hoyt Powell got an end, but Luke was selling it all around Greenville. There it is again, that historic drug heist. Table Rock, Table Rock Labs, and they, got a, they said a million dollars worth of amphetamines. That's 1975 prosecutor Billy Wilkins. But long before he mentioned it to me, and long before Fast Eddie went on the record about what he says happened, the very first person to say the words Table Rock Laboratories to me was self-described amateur historian Andy Etheridge. The Table Rock Laboratory burglaries. It's easily the most lucrative <laughs> narcotics transaction, if you want to call it that. Within almost the entire decade of the 70s, do you get the coke deal from the Miami guys in 82 that put it in a second place. The first time Andy brought it up, I'll admit, I thought, this guy is reaching. How could a 1971 burglary have anything to do with a 1975 murder? But then Billy Wilkins started talking about Table Rock. And Fast Eddie did too. Table Rock, no matter how far removed it seemed, was getting closer and closer to Frank Looper's life and his death. In 1935, South Carolina opened Table Rock State Park in Pickens County, about 25 miles northeast of Six Mile. If you ask most people alive today what they know about a place called Table Rock, will tell you about the tallest mountain that is totally in South Carolina, the bald-faced Pinnacle Mountain, standing in the middle of Table Rock State Park. It's a place where people hike, swim, make lifelong memories. But back in 1970, there was another Table Rock, Table Rock Laboratories. Table Rock Laboratories was South Carolina's oldest pharmaceutical maker. The road from Six Mile to Table Rock State Park takes about 25 minutes to drive. The road from Table Rock Labs to Frank Looper's house might have taken years. In the 1960s, Table Rock Labs had eight locations. On December 11th, 1970, company president Charles Bell broke ground on a 45,000 square foot facility that consolidated Table Rock Labs into a mammoth production and warehouse facility for all the drugs America needed. And that made Table Rock valuable to the organized crime syndicates of the South. One day, I casually mentioned it to retired Greenville City cop, Melvin Croft. Place called Table Rock Lab. Oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> I was working that particular night when the damn hit it. The city of Greenville had just recently annexed the Greenville County land 
just south of Interstate 85, so that made it Croft's job to respond to a burglary call there, to a place that was basically nothing, just a patch of land with a huge drug plant in the middle of it. Easy pickings for a well-trained crew of burglars. It was just basically woods. It basically sitting in the darkened woods on a darkened dead end. So that's what made it easiest. Croft was running his car so hard to get there. It's a miracle he made it there at all. And the reason why it stands out in my mind so vividly is I was headed that way. I was coming down University Ridge and the brakes got hot and the brakes froze up on me. I couldn't stop. I went straight across Church Street. If it had been a damn car coming, I wouldn't be sitting here now. It's impossible to say whether Melvin Croft or anyone could have stopped the burglars that night. And I think they got a pretty nice haul. And it's impossible to say if any of the cops ever had a chance of stopping those burglaries. Yes, burglaries. It happened more than once. One of the reasons they were on such heightened alert because there had been a previous break-in. Andy Etheridge and I have been over and over this, trying to figure out the patterns, locations, and timeline. Thieves hit Table Rock at least three times in one year and used extraordinary tools to do it. This wasn't like Jackie Delk cutting a hole in the roof of a pharmacy and dropping his driver's license. These thieves were pros. They didn't cut into a roof. They cut into a vault. It was a vault. I mean, they broke into a, a, a drug vault. With a blowtorch, right? A blowtorch and a vault. That sounded familiar. And conveniently, the police were dispatched to the wrong address. A lot of that going around, too. So did that strategy. After one burglary, a city policeman named Harold Mayen got written up for sending the cops to the wrong place, intentionally or by mistake. It was the very same way Bub Skelton protected the Dawson gang during the bank robberies in Greenville County. They stole, I think, a truck from the laboratory. It was found in Anderson. Another similarity, a cool car to escape and a hot car. In this case, a very hot car to commit the crime. The burglars stole a Table Rock van and later, set it on fire. All of it added up to a clean getaway. After those break-ins, there were a few people who got caught with the drugs all over the Southeast. People with ties to the Dawson gang and other Dixie Mafia crews in the South. There is a confirmed arrest. John Ransom, the uh, notorious one-legged Dixie Mafia hitman, was found with pills from the Table Rock Laboratory. Nevertheless, by the time Frank Looper took a job under Cash Williams, to fight the drug trade, cops hadn't arrested anyone for masterminding the break-ins. And the pills were everywhere. Billy Wilkins says, many years after the crimes, a man named Luke Cannon admitted it all to him. How Bub Skelton ran interference and surveillance for the crew, and how Luke Cannon held everything like a banker for the Dawson Gang bank robbers and drug thieves. Luke Cannon was a banker. He, he didn't rob the bank, he didn't sell the dope, but he was the guy that kept the cash, kept the dope, and made sure that it was dribbled out so that nobody was flashing a lot of money at one time, and the drugs stayed around to keep a constant flow of cash coming into the organization. That organization, no matter how organized, might have actually been out of its depth. While the drugs ended up as part of a Georgia double murder trial, and in the hands of a Dixie Mafia hitman, the crew in Greenville couldn't sell the dope fast enough to get rid of it all. The one guy I didn't like was Luke Cannon. Retired FBI agent Tom Donahue could deal with lots of people. Nasty folks, killers, 
grifters, wise guys, but he considered Luke Cannon slimy, and eventually Donahue learned how hard Luke was working to make his millions off the drug heist. Luke was repackaging the drugs at his house with his mother. They were putting it in capsules, the stuff that was stolen. That all happened a few years before Danny Jones became a narc. But Jones knew guys on the street. I got a friend of mine which would never talk to you. Who could talk with experience about how Luke Cannon and his crew, in the most literal terms, had more amphetamine powder than they knew what to do with. And they didn't know you were supposed to cut it. And he said, they're just packing it in these capsules. Pharmaceutical grade, uncut, speed. Packed into capsules and turning the southeastern coast of America into literal speed freaks. People were going nuts. We couldn't get it fast enough. And then somebody told them, man, you know, you need to cut back on it. They were, it was 100% amphetamine. There was no cut in it whatsoever. And people were wired up to them. But they had so much of it is in a barrel. I mean, it's like a barrel and they're putting it in capsule. So imagine now what happened when the newest drug kingpins of South Carolina realized they could cut the powder, step on it again and again, and keep selling it. Well, that's the way you start an empire, the kind of empire you just might want to protect. And that is just what Fast Eddie says Bub and Luke were trying to do. He says Bub Skelton and Luke Cannon felt Frank Looper closing in on them. They hired him to shoot into the house to try to scare the man. Today, nearly 45 years later, Fast Eddie Williamson says, after years of working with Bub and Luke in some incredibly high-stakes criminal enterprises, Williamson thought Bub and Luke had finally crossed the line. I didn't know it beforehand. I found out about it after, and we had some serious words about it because Frank Looper and I were pretty much raised together. When I found out about it, Bub Luke was up at the junkyard telling me about it. Oh, I went off on him, which is no reason for that, none whatsoever. And I, di I just didn't like it. I, di I didn't like it at all. That was some of our first real falling outs. If you don't already know the rest of Fast Eddie's story, that statement is loaded with meaning and will ultimately boil over into a whole new drama. But as far as Frank Looper is concerned, Fast Eddie is convinced Bub and Luke were trying to scare Looper away from the Table Rock Labs case. And so, of course, I wanted to know if Eddie thought the same men who shot up the Looper's house were the same men who shot and killed the Loopers. Eddie says, no way. They didn't kill this man. They were not killers. Neither one of them were killers, all right? But they were trying to scare the guy. I'm not gonna stand here and tell you today that Tip and Jerry killed Frank Looper because I don't believe they did. It's still my honest belief that someone in law enforcement who knew how to really use a gun, and Tip and Jerry didn't know how to use one, killed Frank Luther. Tip Gibson is dead. Cancer. Nearly 20 years ago. Jerry Hufflin is still alive. And though I've worked for months to get in touch with him, he's proven to be harder to pin down than most folks. Eddie Williamson, meanwhile, is still in prison and fighting daily against a life sentence. Not for murder, bank robbery, or anything directly associated with this story, but instead a sentence a judge gave him 
because Fast Eddie was a so-called special dangerous offender, caught nearly two decades ago in a car that had guns in it. Fast Eddie has been in prison ever since, and he is not happy about it. But that is a different podcast altogether. Retired narc Danny Jones isn't a showboat or a guy out looking for fame. The reason that I did everything I did was for him. 99% was for Frank. The first night I talked to him, we were on the phone. So I didn't know he still looked like the undercover cop he always was. But I got the sense he cared deeply about Frank Looper. Months later, Jones proved me right. And then some. We met under a park pavilion the same place I'd met a couple of other people I interviewed for the show. As Jones and I started talking, Jones got self-conscious, worried that I thought he was talking too much about himself. And I know it's more about me, but what I can tell you is what I did was for him. That night, as the tree frogs and crickets got loud in a little patch of woods behind us, Jones showed me a framed photo of Frank Looper, one he'd kept for the past 40 years, and a badge he carried that looked nearly identical to Frank Looper's, and photos of himself as a narc. After Frank Looper died, Sheriff Johnny Mac Brown hired Danny Jones and made Jones' dream come true. Danny Jones became a narcotics deputy, one who thought every day about Frank Looper, how Looper would have handled a case, how Looper would have conducted a bust, and how Looper battled the drugs in Greenville County, maybe to the point that it killed him. Jones has a hard time thinking about it, even now, despite the fact he's never stopped thinking about it. Thinking about the what ifs. What if Frank hadn't been home that day in 1975? I've often thought that maybe if Frank hadn't been at home, they were just gonna pop his dad and try to scare him you know, to the point to where your mom's next, that kind of deal. Jones also thinks about how Sheriff Johnny Mac Brown created the Frank Looper Memorial Award, given to the Deputy of the Year, an honor Sheriff Brown awarded every year until he retired. Before she died, Frank's mom, Vera, attended the award ceremonies and handed the plaque to that year's best deputy. Jones thinks about how the Sheriff's Office stopped honoring its deputies in Frank Looper's name after Sheriff Brown retired. That still bothers Jones. Ms. Looper lost her son and her husband in the same minute. She lost it all. On that night we sat together at a picnic table, Jones self-consciously pulled out his old badge, his picture of Looper, and some old pictures of himself and the crew of county narcs he considered brothers. In one picture, they look like a 1970s rock and roll supergroup. The things on the table between us were some of Danny Jones' most treasured keepsakes. But there was one he treasures the most. It's a plaque that Vera Looper handed him, honoring Danny Jones as the recipient of the 1979 Frank Looper Award. Now, I was a kid. I mean, I was 23, 24 years old, but I remember going down in the basement and crying because of that. A lot of it was for Frank, a lot was for his mom. And uh, it means a lot to me. 
I remember going downstairs and saying, we made it. I made it, Frank. Danny Jones became a narc because of Frank Looper. The way Looper lived, worked, and battled in the streets. Looper, the true believer, made Jones a true believer too. And Jones believes what made Looper great, what made him a hero, might have been the very thing that got him killed. And that his hero never got justice. He was putting the heat on somebody, he really was. And, and I don't have any answer for what I'm fixing to tell you. Charles Wakefield didn't shoot him. That was our 19th episode. Before Murder Etc. began, we'd planned for 20 total episodes. Obviously, we're a long way from the finish line. So I'm really grateful to all the people who are donating to the show via PayPal, Venmo, and by joining Amateurs Etc. If you'd like to help out with the next 10 episodes, there are a few ways you can. The first, go give us a written review on Apple Podcasts. Those reviews are the best way to encourage more people to listen. Another way to help is a donation in any amount. You can donate at paypal.me slash murder etc. That's paypal.me slash murder etc. You can also send a donation via Venmo to murder etc. We've got that information on the front page of our website about both of those donation options and how you can join amateurs, etc. That web address is murderetcpodcast.com. Now, here's a preview of what's coming up in Murder Etc.'s 20th episode. In the northern reaches of Greenville County, in the middle of the closest thing you'll find to the middle of nowhere, there's a man who lives a mile off the nearest paved road. It's been a long, hard road. I've had a quiet life and I would love for it to continue to, to stay that way. And that man is one of two men Fast Eddie Williamson says he found sitting on a couch one night, not long after someone murdered Lieutenant Frank Looper. He would eat speed. He would eat about a spoonful. And then we're sitting there and they were running their mouth. Well, I'm glad that Frank Looper got killed. I says, well, I'm the one who killed him. Who is the man that lived that long, hard road? That's next time on Murder, Etc.